0: Welcome back to another episode of Not D&D. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm Jessica Hancock, and I have a wonderful guest with me here today, Matthew. Matthew, please introduce yourself.
1: Hello, uh, my name is Matthew Dawkins. I'm a developer and writer of tabletop role-playing games, an avid role-player and gamer in general. And, yeah, I'm here to speak about the they came from games among various other subjects.
0: Excellent. I think you have to say that in a really dramatic way, though, don't you? Like, they came from, because it's all about, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, it depends. It depends because obviously there's several they came from games. So if we're doing they came from beneath the sea, that needs to be a they came from beneath the sea, like that, you know, (laughs) uh, suitably 1950s B movie. Whereas, Yeah. yeah, Beyond the Grave is more of a. I guess suspenseful horror uh, they came from beyond the grave that sort of thing but yes, yeah anyway, <laughs> okay excellent.
0: Anyway, I, so a dramatic introduction <laughs> to they came from for sure okay good to know <laughs> um so Matthew uh, so obviously we're going to talk about the they came from series that's going to be the, the meat of the show the main bit we're getting into uh, before we get started into that if we could talk about you a little bit and your history with RPGs uh when did you start playing RPGs and what was your first game?
1: Oh, long ago. And it was my first game. uh, So I I, I started around the age of 16 or 17. Uh, That was when I properly started doing tabletop role playing games. I Mm -hmm. had had an interest in them before that, uh, although I didn't fully understand what they were. Uh, and when I was at college which is in the UK for audience members uh, I'm sure you were aware Jessica uh, the sort of age 16 to 18 a period of education over here uh, Mm -hmm. I was very much into video games like Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, the Infinity Engine D&D games uh, despite the title of this show and I was looking up one of the the, uh, a website to do with the NPCs in Baldur's Gate, I remember, at the, my college uh, library. I was uh, mm-hmm. on one of the computers and a man came looming behind me and put his hand on mine, it was an introduction, and moved <laughs> the cursor to the browser and typed in Tsr.com or Wizards of the Wizards.com, I can't remember which, and said, Did you know Baldur's Gate is part of the Forgotten Realms and D and, and so and this all led on to him saying rather creepily Yeah. We we have we have a club oh, yeah if I wasn't creeped out already, uh, <laughs> we have a club that meets up every Sunday night. And uh, we would love it if you could join. And uh, this man is a uh, conservative counselor as well, by the way. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> this is not a fantastic
0: I... opening story. Carry on. <laughs> uh,
1: and so, with a certain amount of trepidation, I attended his mysterious and you club, went. which, yeah, yeah, well, you know, game for anything, really. Uh, it was <laughs> next to a, an old, rundown asylum. In fact, I'm not even making this up. Actually, it was next to a rundown this? asylum, and uh, but it was just a social club called okay. the Old Manor Social Club. And uh, I turned up expecting to play Dungeons and Dragons because that was the game that interested me. It was the only game I really knew about at the time.
0: Yeah, and I turned
1: are. up. Yeah, yeah, I, I turned up on the wrong week, uh, wrong weekend, and ended up playing the Hercules and Zena: The Legendary Journeys. And so that was my first tabletop role-playing game. Uh, and then I came the week after and played D&D, but I carried on playing Hercules and Xena for as long as that ran, because um, it was an alternating week job. Yeah, yeah. And cool. uh, yeah, so very swiftly, I sort of caught the bug of role-playing and was you know buying books, spending all my time reading them instead of doing anything related to my education and uh actually in a way that was your
0: education wasn't
1: it yeah it's the education that mattered i mean who cares about the archaeology and the english literature that i was studying it was the (laughs) it was the role-playing games (laughs) that were going to make me who i became so yeah yeah the rest of it the formal education could go hang as far as i was (laughs) concerned
0: well the English probably a bit useful because you are a writer still so you know there's probably yeah. little interest there okay so that that's one of the most interesting uh stories that I've heard of an introduction to role-playing games so a stranger came up to me and put his hand on mine and said hey do you want to come to this asylum with a group of me and my friends young boy and you were like Yes,
1: I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he okay. was a very. I, I, I won't name him, uh, but because that would be mean. But he okay. he always was. Uh, he, as far as I know, he's still he's still games with the same group. A very slippery awesome. sort of oily man. And um...
0: <laughs> I'm glad you're not naming them because that would.
1: be... <laughs> And yet, you know, I, I have, to, have to be grateful in a sense. He introduced me to, uh, without him doing that, I can't think of anyone else I would have met at college that would have introduced me to tabletop gaming. I probably would have stuck to yeah. video gaming. Mm. Um, but, you know, I guess the road not taken, uh, or in my case, the road taken down to the asylum, and thankfully the other people that were there, the majority of them were perfectly pleasant. <laughs>
0: So that's, that's a fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm going to move on from your own personal asylum introduction to games and talk about um, your work in games. So you say uh, you're a writer, you're a developer. Uh, So how did your career start in tabletop RPGs? How did you transition to being just a player and someone who enjoys them to being someone that works in the industry?
1: Well, I never had aspirations of doing this full time uh not not at f- certainly not at first. I would periodically send in writing samples to various companies, largely white wolf as they were back then and and wizards and and Chaosium. Mm. uh you know because these were games I really enjoyed, and i thought i I was always running them i was always- I was the perpetual g m as ah, opposed to right. players so That meant I was always writing ideas down. I was thinking, oh, you know, some of these could actually stand up as scenarios or monsters they could pop. And so a few times from like 2005 to about 2013, uh, I was entering open calls or I was sending writing submissions. And I wasn't really allowing myself to feel... I guess, uh, destroyed by the fact that I wasn't getting responses. I was aware yeah. that these were very sought-after roles, and mm-hmm. if you don't get picked up, that's fine. You can apply again. Yeah. And eventually, what happened was, and some people have uh, have accused me of buying my way into the industry as if I'm some kind of millionaire, but what happened Oof. was uh, Onyx Path Publishing, who I do Mm -hmm. the majority of my work with today, were running a Kickstarter for Werewolf the Apocalypse, if I recall, uh, 20th Anniversary Edition. And one of the Kickstarter backer levels was uh, as a consulting developer, which basically meant you got to hang around on the development of another book. And you could okay. see drafts come in. You could see red lines getting applied to draft edits, things like that. And as you could get in as involved as you wanted to or as mm-hmm. much as the developer would allow. And so I thought this is really – I could treat this like a creative writing course – if I yeah. sell a bunch of my role-playing games, and I did, I got rid of my entire Deadlands collection to afford this, I yeah. can, I'll basically buy my way into being a consulting developer on this book, Book of the Worm, and I would ask the developer questions. I would see if I could uh, get him to appraise some of my work, tell me what the flaws were, things like that. Yeah, And I was very... Uh, fortunate to have a developer on that book, a man by the name of Stu Wilson, who Mm. was very generous with his time and attention, and really gave me some excellent pointers. And so I took that experience, wrote another writing submission, sent it to Onyx Path for one of their upcoming games called Mummy the Curse, and the developer of that game saw my writing submission and said, I'd like to hire this person. And so... I kind of treated it as a, as I said, I treated that consulting developer tier of Kickstarter backers as my own private writing course. It was roughly the cost of like three or four evening classes, I thought. So might as well do it in an industry I'm interested in. And so from that, I started getting more and more writing assignments as I, I guess, got better at it I honed mm-hmm. my craft I went through lots of different developers and because I was working on loads of different game lines worked for loads of different companies as well which I found invaluable because yeah different companies had different ways of working had different advice you could learn different things from different people and Ultimately, it led to my developing books for games like Pugmire, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, of course, which is probably the game for which I'm most well known, mm-hmm. and, and, other, and other books until, I guess, 2017, where I had a conversation with Richard Thomas, the creative director of Onyx Path, and I said, basically wanted to know, is there a way of doing this full-time? Because I'm yeah. getting through this number of books a year. I do this much writing, this much development. And I'm doing these all contract to contract. But yeah. if I can have a regular wage, essentially, I will commit mm-hmm. to you that I will do X number of books, yeah. manage this, the, these teams and so on, these processes. And we came to an agreement. And so that's what I do now. I, I'm awesome. in a very... I still do freelance work for other companies, uh, as time allows, Mm -hmm. but I am in a very fortunate position, uh, myself and my other in-house developers at Onyx Path, Eddie Webb and Dixie Cochran, where we can say that we have full-time work in the role-playing game industry, which is a pretty rare thing. I mean, yeah,
0: yeah. same, (laughs) I feel that way as well. (laughs) Very fortunate and lucky to have a full-time job in the industry, yeah.
1: Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it has worked out well. I've done work, plenty of work in RPGs. I work on board mm-hmm. games. I've done some some video game writing. Sadly, every yeah. video game I've worked on has been cancelled. But that isn't oh, no. due to my writing. It's nothing to do with...
0: <laughs> I guess we'll never know, Matthew. There's no way to prove that or just prove it. That,
1: so. Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> it have been so terrible yeah. that the company thought, there's no way this can game can go on. Put it on all with
0: this. in the bin, the whole yep. thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, We sunk millions of dollars into this, but this was the straw that broke the camel's back.
0: Obviously, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's well, that's pretty awesome to know, and it's really, it's really interesting. Like the the way you said you had an opportunity and and kind of took it, and and I don't think it's really fair to say you bought your way into it because after that you made a game submission just like anyone else. So if it hadn't been any good, they would have said thanks. Goodbye. Oh, so, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I appreciate uh I, uh, and I know some people cringe at the language, but I, I did have a and do have a position of, I guess, entitled male um, whiteness from a middle class, working middle class background in the south of England. Uh, I had a full time job already, so I had something to fall back on. I had things that I could sell to get the money. I know that there was a lot that I had already that not everyone does. Um, yeah. And so I understand why that can rankle some people, the idea that I had a step up. But I would like yeah. to think that if there is such a thing as paying dues or uh, putting the time in or put it whatever you, mm-hmm. however you like, I would say that since I started writing it professionally in 2013, uh, I've probably put that time in now. I mean, it's nearly been a decade of doing it and people keep hiring me for some reason.
0: Well, must let like your writing work and maybe perhaps a good person to work with as well. Because I think uh, as working at a publishers uh, it's having uh, good writers is one thing, but having a writer that like meets their deadlines and is on time and is good to work with is a, is a whole other, other thing. So if you can have both, that's amazing. Um, but yeah, so that's really great to hear about all kind of the, the history and the thing you've done. Uh, talking about Vampire the Masquerade a little bit, that's um, kind of that's an award winning title that you have so you're an award-winning writer is that correct yeah. so uh in 2019 it was the fan favorite rpg of the year and the best role-playing game of the year so that must have been quite a cool moment in the in your career
1: yeah i mean uh, all these things are team efforts obviously though i i have yeah. never got a specific award for myself uh, i wouldn't want to take that away from the team uh, but oh. yeah i mean Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, it uh, came out and made a lot of noise, I think it's fair to say. Whether people uh, loved it or people didn't, uh, it, it was certainly... Making its way into the industry again after after years of well, apparently people not realizing the 20th anniversary edition was out there. And I know that was part of what White wolf paradox's objective it was make a make a loud noise, make a footprint, all this other sort of metaphorical stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we made changes to the game system-wise, law wise things that would make new players want to give it a go and hopefully yeah. not scare the established players off. Uh, we wanted the established players to think, okay, there's enough here that I like, that I re- remember
0: mm-hmm. from the
1: glory days, um, but there's also some new material here that's going to keep me interested. And... Yeah. I think, uh, you know, in retrospect, while working on V5 had its ups and downs, definitely it wasn't always the easiest game to to work on as a writer or a developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been well received. I mean, hopefully those awards are testament to that, and books are still coming out for it. Uh, people are still always talking about it on Discord, on Twitter, on Facebook, so uh, hopefully that means lots of people are playing it.
0: Well, that's the hope. I think a lot of people do play that game, and it's a very popular game. So like you say, made a lot of noise, so people were definitely talking about it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're getting some questions coming in. There's some great ones talking about the They Came From series, but I'll I'll save that to later to we jump into it. Um, okay. So I wanted to talk about, you've mentioned that you're a writer and a developer. So what are those two different roles? Because for, for some people, they're like, well, are they the same thing? Or what's what's the difference between those?
1: Okay. Well, at their simplest, a writer is someone who will receive an outline for a book. It will tell them, this is what we need you to write. Let's say you need to write a chapter about this world, for instance, or this people, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, you'll have a word count. You might have a tone or a style guide. You may have books you need to reference. And hopefully you've Mm -hmm. got a supportive developer and writing team who you can collaborate with. And then you will have a deadline by which you need to hit your uh, word count. Mm -hmm. Uh, And writing on tabletop role-playing games tends to be part of a team uh, effort. Uh, It's pretty – it's not – utterly uh impossible but it seems to be pretty uncommon for for books of size to be written by a single author now Uh, when it comes to development developers are i guess from a an admin perspective team leaders project managers they uh, will write the outline generally they will supervise the team of writers they will give them direction they will redline the work which is basically going through it for consistency for typos for uh, just getting a red pen and
0: putting crosses saying this is terrible and stuff
1: hopefully not <laughs> like a
0: teacher on homework
1: <laughs> well that's why it's called red lines it, it yeah. is called red lines because of uh, when it was done by hand uh, on paper it would Back be done with day. a red pen and all mm-hmm. the comments in the margin and now it's comments on a word document but hopefully yeah. they're a little more constructive than this is terrible never write for me again
0: uh, <laughs> and, yeah it's and so
1: You know, developing books, obviously there's a lot of RPG developers out there, um,
0: Uh
1: and everyone has a slightly different style. Some are very hands-off, some are more hands-on, some are micromanagers, some uh, are very keen on providing very positive or uplifting or constructive feedback. Some, Mm -hmm. and it's mostly a dying trend these days, at least in my experience, can be very snarky, a bit more... I guess I would compare it a little to being in a sales office uh, where you've got a boss who's basically tearing you down to build you up. I've had a few developers like that, but it seems to be again, a thing of the past more than anything else. Um, so yeah, different developers have different styles. I know I have mine. Uh, there are certain things I look for in manuscripts uh, from yeah. my writers. Uh, things I want, beats I want them to hit, and if they don't hit them, I will advise them hopefully on how to do it. And finally, when a when a book has been through first drafts and then red lines and then final drafts, it will generally enter a stage called development, where yeah. the developer has the entire manuscript. And must now go through the entire thing. Make sure it sounds consistent. Make sure it all hits word count. Make some very hard decisions on whether we need to cut anything, add anything, which you will de- tend to write yourself as yes. the developer. So yeah, it's uh, a very, it can be a very complex job, but I, I love developing books. Yeah. It's, um, I, I find it's my niche.
0: Excellent. Lucky that's what you're doing then, isn't it? We have been told off, though. A teacher has told us that they use green pens, not red pens now. So our information is out of date. But, well, Leprechaun, when we were back in school, it was red pens. (laughs) And
1: I remember my teachers at secondary school used to tell me that writing in green biro was considered very rude. I don't know why, uh, but that's what we were told. But I went to a silly school. (laughs)
0: Uh, my work always was covered in red pens because i'm dyslexic so everything was just Mm. just completely wrong they're like you have very good creative writing and story skills but we wish we could read it (laughs) (laughs) we infer
1: the meaning
0: yeah we infer that you're telling a good story because they'll ask me to talk about it they're like oh that's really great but like can you spell (laughs) no (laughs) but anyway but that's why i i won't be a writer or developer because i would miss all of those things um so uh, so we're going to start to move on uh, now to talk about the "They Came From" line, the thing that we're here to talk about. Um, but someone has asked um, ha- someone has asked a question, and I'm going to make it so it can't be the "They Came From" line because that's what we're talking about now. But of okay. all the books and articles you've written, which one are you the kind of most proud and happiest of? Ooh,
1: and I'm going to excuse the "They
0: Came From" one just because we're about to talk about it, so it seems like yeah. that's an easy cop out.
1: So that's actually really difficult because there is, you know, that you fall in love and out of love with projects. You look back on things you've worked on, sometimes with pride, sometimes you cringe. And, I mean, undoubtedly the thing, if, if I am, can be, I guess, arrogant enough to say, oh, we're remembered for anything. Uh, it would be for work on Vampire. And I imagine it Mm -hmm. would be for my work on a vampire book called Beckett's Jihad Diary, which is a large source book for Vampire the Mastery 20th Anniversary Edition, and Mm -hmm. kind of acted as the bridge from that edition to V5. Now, uh, Beckett's... Diary is a book that's largely composed of artifacts. So that's diary entries, okay. blog posts, transcripts. Yeah. It's a big book of handouts, essentially. Okay. Uh, but it also covers something Vampire is very well known for, which is metaplot, basically the world of the world of darkness. All the things that have been taking place ever since Cain first got a stone in Abel's head, you know? Um, (laughs) So it goes into a hell of a lot of depth about vampire, vampire's backstory, its lore. Mm-hmm. and i co-developed this book with a fantastic gentleman by the name of neil raymond price mm-hmm. uh, it was one of my first development jobs and i it was kind of the book for me in a lot of ways yeah. because when i was really first getting into role playing mm-hmm. i devoured vampire the masquerade lore i just i i just read every single oh, book all somehow you, yeah. stayed in my head unlike things i learned at school <laughs> i was i was able to memorize this nonsense mm-hmm. and it stayed with me and yet i never really had anywhere to apply that because i never applied it at the gaming table i didn't want to drown my players in all this bump but when it came to writing beckett's jihad diary this was a book specifically made for all that bump course,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and so i could finally pour all of this information that i've been storing for the last god knows how many years of role-playing into yeah. a book in a cogent fashion and to my great relief it was very well received critically people seem to really enjoy it vampire Excellent. fans and it's a great onboarding book for fans of vampire so i'm very proud of it i think it holds up um i'm sure there are books i have written to a higher quality or developed in a tighter fashion less indulgently but Beckett's will always be a very special project to me I think
0: that sounds awesome it it kind of leads me on to a question I had was a lot of the books you have are uh, kind of horror kind of darker ones there's not happy bunny skip through fields as a theme I was going to ask if that was something you, you chose to do or if it's something you kind of got typecast into but it sounds like that was something that you were drawn to and wanted to work on is that is that correct Oh
1: yes and no. I suppose I think it's one of those things I've changed. uh, I have uh, that has changed me uh, significantly as I have worked through this industry. Uh, When I first got into writing and first got into role playing in a major way, I was all about Mm. horror. The World of Darkness was my campsite, I guess. And so, if I could work on any game, it was going to be the various World of Darkness games and then Chronicles of Darkness games. Uh, because I love horror movies, I love horror stories, and I just I, I just find that kind of thing very easy to write and enjoyable to write. But as time has gone on, I sometimes find myself in need of, I need, I need to come up for air. I need a little. Uh, I need bunnies dancing through meadows. I need yeah. fairies and light and and camp and humor and farce. And in a way, that's where all they came froms come in. Uh, and I've worked on games like Pugmire and Monarchies of Mao and games like Modern Age uh, that aren't explicitly horror um they're often fantasy i've worked on some sci-fi as well so i do do work that isn't horror mm. but i would say horror is my natural state <laughs> uh,
0: you're naturally horrific
1: <laughs> yes uh, certainly from, from a creative angle um
0: excellent
1: no I was running Wraith the Oblivion, which is a World of Darkness game, uh, very mm. recently, just last night, in fact. And uh, it's a, it was an introductory game for a new group uh, who are on my Patreon, and they, they wanted to play Wraith. And so I... Was thinking about, well, what would be an interesting way of running Wraith, this game where you are playing the dead in the underworld? And so I had them all die, their characters all died and became ghosts on a sunk Nothing cruise so. liner. And so they ended up in this sort of galley in the underworld being guided by a ferryman to one of the shores of Stygia, the underworld city. And then that galley gets sunk by the Tempest, this roiling sea of specters. And they've ended up on this, uh, what's called a far shore, a semi-afterlife, which is basically the half-sunk spirit of the titanic and its crew and its passengers and all of this is going on and all these sort of cogs are whirring in my head because when i'm writing or running horror i kind of find it easy to jump from a to b to c to d it I can mm-hmm. think, okay, so I want some interesting characters. I want them to die in an interesting way that's going to all be in the same place. Yes. I want them to be in a place that they can't naturally escape from at the very beginning, mm-hmm. so they can learn something about the setting. I want yes. there to be a cultural touchstone, and so you've got the Titanic as everyone knows about the Titanic, and mm-hmm. you know, it all, all kind of comes together like that for me when it's horror. Sci-fi, I struggle a bit more with. I have to reach a little more for my uh, touchstones on that.
0: Oh, fair enough. Well, you've convinced somebody. They've not played Vampire the Masquerade, but they're they're fancying giving it a try now. So, Sold, sounds like you've done do. on that one. Uh, but speaking <laughs> of Sold a little bit more, what we're actually here to talk about today is that They Came From series, um, yes. which, as we've mentioned, will do uh, a range of different things. Um, uh, yeah, so let's come in and talk about that now. So... First of all, I'm going to start with uh, they They came from beyond the grave. And earlier, if people didn't hear, because you're also a voice actor, how would you introduce this if this was like the TV kind of show with introduction?
1: If I could do a decent Vincent Price, it would probably be a Vincent Price voice. Uh, and so I guess I could do a Christopher Lee of the key, <laughs> just me lowering my voice by a couple of octaves. They came from beyond the grave. Uh, That's so... more than I
0: can do with this voice, so you know <laughs> they came from beyond the grave. Uh, so uh, yeah. So tell us. Uh, so first of all, let's. Uh, so there's a whole line of books uh, that come in as yes. the they came from series, um, and I've got them tickering in the bottom of the screen. There's a whole range of them. So we're going to get into all of them. So what is? Um, so this setting they came from. the around the grave is kind of zombies and the undead, I'm assuming.
1: Uh, Hammer horror, uh, Hammer Amicus horror. movies, Roger Corman movies. The They Came From line is, is what I call they cinematic role-playing games Excellent. in the sense that you yeah. are emulating the, the sort of action, the drama, the investigation, the suspense of movies of certain genres. Um, and for most of them, not all, but most of them, we select an mm-hmm. era – in media history, and we take our inspiration from that era. And I wanted to do that with They Came From because They Came From was a, a concept of my own. I worked on it with yeah. other people once it was sold to Onyx Path, absolutely. Uh, but the idea of doing They Came From as the sort of genre game, cinematic role playing games, was mine. And I thought, there's lots of horror games out there. And I know, yeah. I think uh, you. Uh, i can't remember i think we may have actually played a game of dead of night together but uh, i think it was a <laughs> the...
0: The game of cults we played as well and you were a, a cult leader um yes that was uh, well. one of
1: steve's games i won't say his full name but uh yes
0: yeah back, yeah, but... back before that before the plague when we used to meet in person uh, and play games <laughs> yeah
1: back when we had conventions on the south coast of england the balmy south, but anyway um so yes there's loads of horror games out there there's loads of sci-fi games out there but there aren't many that are fixed to a certain period mm-hmm. and so beyond the grave very much takes uh, its mood from the hamminess the wooden acting the cheap sets the gothic era of the 1970s late 1960s through to 1970s so there's yeah. lots of big mustaches large collars characters smoking, big hair, flares and
0: um,
1: uh, yeah, and cigarettes stained wallpaper. But it also contains a nineteenth century aspect to it as well. So your characters can basically exist in two different times as you can play your characters and their ancestors going through the same horrific storyline. And just like every other they came from, there's a big streak of humor because it's, in a way, parodies, in a way, pays tribute to the things we love about these old movies, which is sometimes not that they are utterly terrifying, but that they are very cheap. And knowing that we can't create fantastic sets for our tabletop role-playing games, it's sometimes easier and sometimes more entertaining to bring some of that, I guess, cheap, bare-bones nature into your narrative. To Mm -hmm. have the butler be a stereotyper, you know, crooked old man saying, oh, yes, master. To have a portrait with slots for eyes to look through in the haunted house and a chandelier that comes crashing
0: down.
1: There's nothing wrong with playing with those stereotypes. And, in fact in the they came from games it's encouraged we want these games to feel like the movies the tv shows uh, yeah. that inspire them uh, because i think though the people that play these games are fans of that kind of thing
0: 100 percent. this has kind of answered a question we've had here about the they came from beneath the sea of what was your inspiration for that came from Beneath the Sea. Uh, So it sounds like it's all those kind of classic films we'd expect, really.
1: Well, yeah. Beneath the Sea is a little muddled because Beneath the Sea was the first one. And when I first started playtesting beneath the sea at the uk games expo back when it was taking place in a masonic lodge in edgbaston uh, <laughs> it was a very serious dry military game of aliens attacking from the deep and your members are your mercenaries trying to save the world it wasn't very good i'll be honest and <laughs> okay. so I went back to the drawing board because I always loved aquatic aliens, aquatic invasion. And I've also Mm. always loved B movies and sci-fi of the 1950s, sort of Ed Wood uh, era. And so I was looking at inspirations like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place where characters would say utterly wooden dialogue and act really poorly yeah and i was looking at plan nine from outer space and i was looking at the batman uh, 1960 tv series with the zaps and the kapows and the (laughs) knowing lines of nonsense and i was thinking you could have a game that incorporates all of these things and so beneath the sea takes inspiration from 1950s b-movie and 1950s cold war uh, red threat kind of thing red invasion because that's what invasion movies were largely inspired by um but it introduces this recurring mechanic that exists across the other they came from in the form of quips Mm -hmm. where your characters can use one-liners that give you additional dice uh, each time you use them, especially if you're using them in completely incongruous but entertaining fashion. Okay. The the line that appears frequently throughout the game is mm mm, smells like mama's apple pie. Which you could use entering a diner. It's the nineteen fifties, after all. It might be something you say, yes. you get an extra die to your next roll. Well done. Okay. Now let's say you hack open a were lobster. Mm-mm. Smells like mama's apple pie. Now you've got two dice to add to your <laughs> next roll. And then maybe you get into bed with your wife at the end of the day. Mm mm. Smell- okay. yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's nonsense. Okay. It's deliberately nonsensical. But yeah. we found that using dialogue and not putting the onus on the players to come up with comedy, because not every single player is a comedian. Not every single player is skilled at improvisational yeah. comedy. But having the tools in the game to make the game entertaining, as entertaining yeah. as you want it to be, really yeah. seemed to tip people over the edge of being able to access it.
0: Yeah, I think because uh, having a structure like that is very comfortable. If, if you're new to role-playing, or like you say, you're not confident being off the cuff and things like that, you have a structure you can go to, and that's exactly. really safe. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, I mean, the, if there's a design philosophy behind the they came from, it's that, mm-hmm. for me, role-playing games should, more than anything else, be entertaining. And next to that, they should be yeah. fun. now that's not to dismiss role-playing games being deep and introspective or anything like that because i love horror Mm -hmm. games too but the games i remember most the games that leave me with a warm fuzzy feeling are the ones where i'm laughing at the table where when i'm walking away from the table i'm smiling because i'm thinking about the stupid things that we did and even better if that was all actually within a controlled plot so the GM yeah. doesn't feel like well those players just ran rough shot over my deeply personal horror game.
0: Yeah uh, that's true yes.
1: Um, but, uh, the, I mean I'll just linger on it briefly but one yeah. of the other mechanics we introduce in beneath the sea mm-hmm. that appears in the other they came from is cinematics which enable you to metagame essentially. At a sort okay. of studio level, the players suddenly become producers of this movie that you're making. And so you're able to do things like uh, insert a cheap set. Let's say you're being cornered by a Gillman with a laser gun. There's no way out. Well, <laughs> now you play the cheap set card. It's a cinematic power. And all of a sudden, that stone wall behind you, you can run straight through it because it's a cheap set. It's just suddenly made of paper. Or you can use a missing Excellent. scene because centipus on the front cover, the hundred tentacled octopus, is mm-hmm. about to devour your ship. Again, there's no way out. You insert a missing scene. What that means is if this were a movie, it would suddenly go and cut to black, and then you'd appear somewhere else. All of the characters, when you use this missing scene, must appear somewhere else. They just okay. That scene Great. is gone. That, Captain, yeah, that, I'm
0: glad we got out of that scrape anyway.
1: Exactly exactly like that jessica they cannot explain (laughs) how they can allude to it they can say something i've never seen someone do that with a pineapple before but they can't exactly (laughs) explain (laughs)
0: yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah, but that's the point these games are supposed to be silly at times serious at others but Mm-hmm. more than anything else they're supposed to allow players agency and make players have fun at the table i want people smiling when they're gaming and yeah. i think that they came from do a good job at that
0: yeah a little element of like oh here's one i made earlier so i just managed to escape it's not a problem so exactly. i love the sound of that um we have a question about so we talked about uh Two, two in the line there, and they said any future uh, plans. And I saying the future, in a way, is now because there is currently a Kickstarter happening. Uh, there is please indeed. tell us all about this.
1: Okay, so the <laughs> they came from. So they're currently on Kickstarter. Are uh, they came from the Cyclops' Cave and they came from Classified. If you've been listening to what I've been talking about up till now, you'll be able to probably identify their media inspiration. But if not, Cyclops' Cave is fantasy movies and TV shows up Mm -hmm. to about the mid-90s. So Cyclops' Cave isn't restricted to an era of fantasy. In fact, Mm -hmm. it has Sword and Sandals fantasy, sort of Odysseus, Clash of the Titans, Sinbad, all the way through to Sword and Sorcery, Conan, Krull, Sword and the Sorcerer, Hawk the Slayer, up to Hercules and Xena, appropriately enough, as my first role-playing game. It's Maybe just influencer.
0: before,
1: yeah, well, no, there's definitely some Hercules and Xena influence in mm-hmm. there. But the main thing about it is it's about fantasy movies before fantasy movies started getting critically acclaimed. So before Lord of the Rings, basically,
0: well, they had um, any money or budget and it was just like Hope, Prayers and duct tape
1: exactly the actors tended <laughs> to be subpar compared to the a-listers it was never they were never getting awards but there's a lot of heart, and cyclops's cave is our fantasy they came from we're very happy mm-hmm. with it. i co-developed it with michele masala one of my uh, frequent collaborators as a writer this is uh, mm-hmm. one of his first development jobs and he did a brilliant job and uh, yeah we do love cyclops's cave and classified mm-hmm is our espionage movies and media mm. game So Bond, The Avengers, the John Steed and Emma Peel Avengers, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to Captain America. And <laughs> Matt, The Man from Uncle, The Champions, Jason King, Austin Powers, Kingsman. It's mm-hmm. our yeah spy features. And yeah. again, we get to pull from all of these fantastic sources of inspiration. Uh, classified is... I know uh, I shouldn't have a favorite, but Classified is probably my favorite. It's just such fun to read. Uh, the It was such fun to contribute to, and it's one I have an inordinate amount of fun running. Um, but backing the Kickstarter, you don't have to go for both. Uh, some people want both. Some people just want mm-hmm. Cyclops. Some people just want Classified. You can choose which one you want, uh, okay. or you can just back for $5 and access the manuscripts for both books regardless. And you can always up your pledge later if you want yeah. to. Um, the, so in terms of the future of where They Came From... Mm-hmm. it really depends on how well this kickstarter does i guess and uh okay. and future sales of the they came from lines we have already f- hit funding so that's a good sign
0: yes uh, i was about to say the kickstarter link i've just i've i popped up on the screen but i also put in the comments so if you're watching and don't want to type out that long line you can just click it on there to go have a look if you fancy as well um but yes sorry you're saying it's already funded which is excellent
1: yeah. And so now we're just, uh, the more funding we get additional to it, the more additional supplementary books we can release, which is always nice. I like to hire my teams back, uh, freelance yeah. writers, and I like to develop more books than they came from mine. Um, but yes, so Classified is the one, in answer to Morris's question, yeah. uh, that speaks to me the strongest right now. I, I vacillate because I also love They Came From Camp Murder Lake, which is the slasher movie expansion to Beyond the Grave.
0: Oh, excellent. Um, yeah.
1: But uh, I, even growing up, uh, I was always exposed to the Avengers and the new Avengers and Randall and Hopkirk, the things that were being repeated on ITV in the UK mm-hmm. at tea time. And so that stuck with me, probably more so than James Bond. So <laughs> the, this game has a huge amount of that sort of 1960s flash and camp uh influence to it where everyone's wearing very gaudy costumes and the supervillains yeah. are real villainous masterminds with ridiculous plots and acronyms like stench for their villainous yes. organization
0: and a dubious motivation that's not too realistic and always a white fluffy cat
1: mm. Oh well, well, yeah we don't know. the white white fluffy cat is a direct signifier of villainy
0: uh, Exactly <laughs> that's why I have a dog so no one suspects no one suspects (laughs) yeah i think i think it's really great to have a line that are going on those uh you know those classic shows and things somebody's uh even uh morris mentioned that if they wanted it, they came from space and uh and they went the, and the only yes sure we've got one <laughs> there you go uh, so that's really yeah. great about having a, a line of these things there so they're on dry through rpg as well uh so your wish is answered there already is something there for you as well which is uh excellent uh, to kind of know as well yeah um, we've got loads
1: of mini supplements like they came from okay. outer space and uh, oh they came from dracula's tomb all, all sorts of things that uh, Bolt on them all modular. You don't need them, but if you want them because you like a certain type of movie, they expand these games.
0: Well, that's excellent. So, and are the rules uh, kind of similar throughout the world? So mechanically, if you've played one, you're going to know how to play the others. Does it work that way?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, the big four Beneath the Sea, Beyond the Grave, Classified, Cyclops' Cave they're all core books. You can buy mm-hmm. them independently or with each other, and yeah. uh, they all contain everything you need. However, the rules for each are. Completely cross compatible. What that means uh, is that there is absolutely nothing stopping you from creating a character in Beneath the Sea and playing that same character in a story of Beyond the Grave or Amazing. Classified or what have you.
0: So, you're like an actor that's wandered into the wrong warehouse at the movie studio. <laughs>
1: That is exactly what I'm going for. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because these actors uh, of the 60s and 70s, much like you see New York actors all passing through the sort of law and order mill uh, Mm -hmm. in the 1960s and 70s, uh, especially in Britain. You would appear in the Avengers, you'd appear in the man from uncle, you'd appear in, you know, pretty much everything going. And then you'd go back to the start again as a different character. And you'd go through that cycle again, you had jobbing actors. And so regardless of genre, you can do that with this. I think what that's meant is because there's very little duplication between each book mm-hmm. in terms of powers, and especially not antagonists. It means, mm-hmm. for instance, I'm running a game of They Came From Classified, a campaign of it. And okay. I've told a few people about this, but what I found really interesting is one of my players is playing a survivor. That's one of the archetypes, uh, playable mm-hmm. archetypes, from beneath the sea. a sort of grizzled cabin-dwelling outdoorsman in mm-hmm. uh, this game of Classified. But another person is playing a mystic, which is one of the archetypes from Beyond the Grave in okay. Classified. And yeah. they're playing this uh, character like Solitaire from Live and Let Die because she's a mystic she's a fortune teller Mm -hmm. and so classified is an espionage game but it can support these archetypes from the other games and so with each they came from you by you give yourself more options but it's never a case that one is trumping another it's just you get to play with as much as you want or as little as you want
0: that sounds excellent. I love the idea of a good genre mash there. So that's excellent. The system supports that. Um, so if you are interested uh, in having a look at that, you can also go and have a look uh, at the onyxpath.com for the ones that are already existing that we're talking about. Or uh, you can go grab the Kickstarter there. I've also put the link in the comments. So you can just click the link instead of having to type that out there. Um, so if you want to go take a look at that. It's live now. How? When does the Kickstarter end, is it?
1: I think it has about just over two weeks left, so 17 so days, time. I think.
0: There yeah. is time to just drop for the £5 pledge and then go to the pledge manager later and, and figure out what you're going to do. So there is time. Excellent. Absolutely. Okay. Um, do we have any uh, questions? Oh, we have some questions uh, now as well about, do you have a favourite or a preferred archetype uh, in the games?
1: Ooh. So I have had the fortune of playing They Came From quite a lot, which is rare for me because most of the time I only ever get to run games I'm working on. Yeah. Uh, but luckily I know quite a lot of people that like They Came From and they like to run it. So the archetype I tend, archetypes I tend to go for are the ones most people underestimate. And my favourite one is in Beyond the Grave, which is The Dupe. No one wants to play someone with the archetype The Dupe. This is a this is the character who coasts by on luck, who is hapless, who is in, who receives an invitation to Dracula's castle and thinks, "I'll go because what larks, you know, this will be fun if I go along." Uh, you know, completely oblivious to everything, but all of the special abilities, the tropes that this character has access to, basically allow him, just as Dracula's going in for the bite, to reach over and say, "Oh, what's in this uh, this glass?" and Dracula you all this or um it it's it's just fun to play with the genre conventions yeah. and yeah the dupe is is easily a favorite that or in camp murder lake i'm very fond of the wild child uh, mm-hmm. camp murder lake has I guess, the five archetypal slasher teens in it has, you know, a nerd, yeah. a jock, a wild child, and so forth. And I do like playing the wild child, whether it's in Monster Hearts uh, at a game not Bionics Bar, Um, I like playing that kind of character, or whether it's yeah. um, in Camp Murder Lake, I like playing the, the punk sitting at the back of the classroom who's flicking a cigarette down the back of the popular girl's jumper, that sort of thing. <laughs>
0: that's so funny you mentioned the the dupe as well because it just reminded me of the story you told at the beginning about your first introduction to role-playing game a strange man comes up to you at the library touches your hand and says do you want to come to my role-playing club next to the asylum next week and you went yes i would love to that's that's, why you like it that's just you are that character
1: art imitates life
0: it's not (laughs) role-playing if you role-play yourself matthew (laughs) um so moving on we've talked about your kickstarter a little bit um and you've been involved in a few kickstarter campaigns this isn't your first rodeo um and at the top of the week I wanted to talk about kind of crowdfunding and the impact that's had on the indie tabletop RPG kind of industry um so obviously it's kind of removed the barrier of entry for a lot of smaller kind of Indie kind of publishers, and um, I just wanted to know about kind of your experiences with Kickstarters uh, oh, or crowdfunding platforms in general, and yeah, what kind of what that's been allowed you to do, and, and what advice you give to people that perhaps sitting here going, I've got an idea for a game, maybe crowdfunding is the way to go.
1: Well, I mean, it's a complete game changer. It really yeah. has.
0: Uh,
1: I mean, it's a strong word to say it's revolutionised our industry, but it's certainly changed. I don't think that's it. too
0: strong a word at all. Because yeah, uh, yeah
1: but well, yeah. well, well, yeah. I mean, uh, to take uh, one of the largest success stories of recent months, of the Avatar role playing game. Uh, which drew in so many million and the one ring which drew in so many million if these had been games that had been released via pre-order mechanism on a company websites uh, years ago they would have never drawn so much money they would have never drawn so much attention and for me What is most remarkable about crowdfunding, uh, when it goes well, because it doesn't always, and I, in fact, I would still say that it's the minority that really succeed with it. It's a very busy marketplace. It's the marketing aspect of a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo or other crowdfunding campaign. Mm -hmm. There's a, for one thing, putting it on a site like that's already it has a certain pull to it um there there will be people who frequent these sites who are addicted to the pre-ordering process but there are also people who love to collaborate with the creators and kickstarters yeah. indiegogos often leave room for that kind of thing with comments sections up updates uh that should be frequent um if the creator is really putting the time in uh, it's a good way of showing off what is coming up in mm-hmm. a book, and. You know, you can see certain formula getting repeated, of course, and, and refined as Kickstarters find their way. Uh, for instance, it will be things like showing off art that will appear in the book, uh, releasing the yeah. manuscripts before the book itself is released, uh, mm-hmm. giving tools to allow people to play it before the book is released,
0: yeah.
1: giving well, doing interviews like this. Oh. the. The, the the crowd the crowdfunding process is holistic in the sense that it mm-hmm. draws people to you. It allows you to interact with them. hopefully it allows you to captivate them as a yeah. seller in the marketplace. And mm-hmm. what's more, it then gives you access to them, the dark side I guess of crowdfunding for future campaigns.
0: Yeah
1: uh, because if they've backed one, they might back another. They might be interested. Yeah. If they liked your work, they might mm. like what you've got coming up next so it's a market that didn't exist before it just didn't uh, you know we mm-hmm. had yeah. of course we had online bookstores and friendly local gaming stores yeah. and some companies were ahead of the game with their own websites or web stores uh, i remember at the time something like Steve Jackson's Warehouse 13, I think it's called, was Mm -hmm. for a a time a very popular way of buying games via the internet, specifically from Steve Jackson's games. Uh, But now so much runs through uh, crowdfunding that it isn't – it is no longer – I think it's fairly evident, but it's no longer – a tool that can that's only for the use of small publishers it oh, yeah. is now for any project of any size and some people are unhappy with that some people like the idea of this being a way for smaller publishers to get a leg up where they wouldn't have had one before yeah um, and I think that there's some validity to that. Yeah. Um, I also think that there is no way of regulating that right now. Certainly yeah. companies like Kickstarter have no appetite to do so.
0: Sure.
1: So it's um, it's an interesting quandary. Mm-hmm. But for me, as a creator in this industry, I am very happy to see so many people doing so well through it. That yeah. It, it provides the possibility of pe- people working on role-playing games to reach new audiences get new books mm-hmm. to work on earn a bit more money than they may have been if they were just yeah. working contract to contract for a company that didn't have much reach you know i think yeah. the benefits outweigh the uh, the drawbacks
0: yeah i'd say i'd agree 100 percent. and i also think when people talk about they say oh there's big you know, companies doing, uh, you know, Kickstarter campaigns. I think people realize that even big companies in uh, tabletop RPGs still don't have a huge amount of employees. You know, no, it's it's no, not, not this office in, you know, in the buildings with hundreds of people of it. Like at EM Publishing, technically there's only two employees. Myself and Russ and the rest are kind of freelance. So that's that's kind of it. And I'm sure it's the same at the Onyx Path as well. There's not like 50 to 100 people going in an office building every day, being this corporate thing it's generally a group of just really enthusiastic people who love rpgs trying to trying to get their product out there so yeah yeah if you're lucky enough to be able to employ people and do that that's that's great you know
1: (laughs) i mean far far be it from me to put words in people's mouths but uh, i will anyway i think a lot of people (laughs) who who assume a company is big uh based on a kickstarter let's say will usually be because they're dealing dealing with a license so let's say yeah steam forged games i'll take them as an example releasing a resident evil board game uh, mm-hmm. big fan of steam forged games and their work uh, yeah. but they don't own resident evil they're licensing yeah. it and mm-hmm. licenses can be precarious they tend to be quite yeah. short term and mm-hmm. the uh, and the overheads for dealing with licenses can also be quite costly and there yeah. is a perception and I think it's an incorrect one that if a company has a license, that means they made it. That means they're big. But I th- think the risks of dealing with licenses it can sometimes outweigh the, the benefits. Um, yeah. Sometimes the amount of... Uh, difficulties you have to go through getting products approved when you're dealing with licenses uh, yes. from the companies on high can really be very challenging. I know sometimes people will view Onyx Path as a big player because we have dealt with World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness Exalted. These are all mm-hmm. big popular games. But we have them at Paradox's say-so, and we don't, won't necessarily all have them but that's why we've always been building up our own bank of games like Scion, Trinity they came from yeah. and working with other partners like uh, Eddie Webb's Pug Study dealing with Pugmire and Monarchies of Mal yeah. uh, it's a diverse marketplace and it's incorrect really to look at anyone other than Wizards of the Coast as or Hasbro yes. as, as a big player everyone else is well they're not struggling but it's not like we're lounging around in bathtubs full of money uh we have no. to keep making games
0: <laughs> yeah to, to stay yeah 100 percent. and you've got agreement from uh, morris from me and publishing there as as a company that's had a licensed product i think we were relating to a lot of things you said there um yeah so hopefully that's answered some of your questions um on the games and on uh kind of Kickstarter things if you have any questions now is the time to ask them because we are coming to the top of the hour and the end of our time here on not DD this week uh so if you have any questions do get them in now uh so i do want to say thank you so much matthew to coming on and giving us your time to talk us through your position in role-playing game or the things you've worked on and sharing the kickstarter with us um so if you're interested in the kickstarter links are in the comments and uh, i'll just pop that up here so in the comments on facebook twitch or wherever you're watching Uh, next week we have another fantastic guest coming on as well so we're speaking to john harper and we're talking about lasers and feelings and we're talking about how we welcome new people into the hobby because i think this is an excellent uh, game to do that Um, also if you're wanting to catch more stuff from ian live uh this friday we are doing the rpg news roundup so we'll be doing this week in tabletop rpg on fridays and we also have the podcast as well on saturdays with a ridiculously long name Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk podcast uh, that I did not name Uh, so thank you very much to Onyx Path (laughs) for lending us Matthew and for creating these great games for us to share it seems like we don't have any more questions at this point I think we'll say thank you very much for your time thank you for watching and good night
1: thank you bye